Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. I've been thinking more and more about what we're doing here, about what I'm doing personally, and about how that fits into the various trends we're seeing in our intellectual and ethical and political lives. The circumstance we find ourselves in is increasingly strange, don't you think? It's half psychological experiment and half Ponzi scheme. What are we doing here? I generally think about civilization as a machine for engineering and safeguarding certain experiences, and it seems to me that it has barely started running in earnest. I mean, we've had a few thousand years of real culture and a few hundred years of anything like scientific rationality. And then merely a few decades of leveraging all this with information technology. Maybe there's a hardware and software analogy here. Perhaps civilization is the hardware layer and culture is the software. We have the things we actually build, the roads and bridges and the hospitals, the factories, the internet. And then we have the reasons why we built these things and the insights and ideas that make them possible and the stories we tell ourselves, and our expectations of one another, our hopes for the future, the norms we adhere to, and demand that others adhere to, whether we can consciously specify those norms or not. Much of culture is implicit, but we need to make it more and more explicit when things begin to break down, when our efforts to cooperate with one another are failing, and failing at great cost to everyone involved. On one level, it's a miracle that anything works at all, and things really do work to an impressive degree. Most planes do not crash. Rather often, you call the police and they come and either prevent or solve a crime, and everyone's grateful, and no one appears racist. Journalists often put their biases aside and get their facts straight. Tomorrow, some drug company will develop a new medication and regulators will help to standardize its usage. And it will actually improve people's quality of life without imposing unacceptable costs elsewhere. It's against a background of success, and successes that we increasingly take for granted, that our failures are so noticeable. But I know I'm not alone in feeling that we've had more than our fair share of failures of late. And of course, we can't get off the ride. Right? There's no break to pull. We are condemned to create and proliferate culture. Memes upon memes upon memes. We bend light and sound for the purposes of entertainment. We create corporations and economic relationships that leverage mutual advantage and yet seem to presuppose endless growth. And it's very hard to envision where all of this frantic activity is headed. I mean, clearly, we have to navigate between a crisis of overpopulation, where we suffer some kind of global collapse and famine, and underpopulation, where we have multitudes of senescent men and women wandering the streets in diapers with no one to care for them. And we have to expect technology to save us or to ruin everything. I mean, are the robots coming to our rescue or are they coming to kill us? It's hard to know from here. In the meantime, as we 
stagger around with our smartphones, the need for meaning is becoming more and more pressing. What should we be doing with our time on Earth? Needless to say, the ancient answers to this question aren't working. In fact, they're becoming increasingly dangerous. One answer to the crisis of meaning is tribalism. And tribalism has many forms. From caring just a little too much about soccer or college basketball, to the fully weaponized hysteria and cultishness that has subsumed our politics. All tribalism now tends toward theocracy, whether it's religious or not. It develops a taste for the irrational. Rather often you have to profess to believe the unbelievable as a profession of in-group loyalty. And then the ideologies proliferate, and they erect taboos and blasphemy tests that are non-negotiable. And then even otherwise smart and decent people increasingly adopt the ethics of the crowd, and they scapegoat others, and they find they rather like to watch a human sacrifice, whether real or metaphorical. Of course, we now see this dynamic in the form of identity politics everywhere. There's not even a pretense of an argument that the world can be made better for everyone. And the media and academia and other institutions have been captured by all this clamor, and these new norms of intolerance in the name of tolerance are making honest conversation more and more difficult, and even dangerous. Because if you say anything that calls this modern catechism into question, if, for instance, you wonder whether systemic racism is really as bad as advertised by those who might be shrieking about it in Portland in front of a vacant storefront, or whether the cops are really killing disproportionate numbers of young black men, at this moment in history, or whether Islam really is as peaceful and compatible with modernity as Methodism is, say, or whether there's an element of social contagion behind the increase in transgenderism among teenagers, specifically teenage girls, or if the pervasive social inequality we see in our society has anything to do with certain cultural norms actually being better than others, or more terrifying still, whether there are genetic differences among individuals or even between groups that might be involved here. Well, if you even entertain any of those ideas, well, then you're a Nazi, fit only to be destroyed. And this increasing commitment to moralizing and politicizing everything is becoming authoritarian. It is stifling dissent. It is punishing thought crime. And it has provoked an exodus of smart people from mainstream institutions. And so we now have podcasts and Substack newsletters proliferating by the hour. But as I've said several times of late, this shattering of institutions is increasingly dysfunctional. Not everything in our society can be accomplished by outsiders and iconoclasts. I mean, imagine if we no longer trusted mainstream sources of airplane parts, and every pilot was left to their own initiative to find spare engine parts from non-traditional sources. That would be madness. You're going to get your spare plane parts on Etsy. But something analogous is happening in information space. When people are deciding what to believe, actually trying to figure out what is factually true about COVID for instance, or China, or climate change, 
people no longer trust the mainstream media or academia or the government to deliver anything like the unvarnished truth. And this is largely due to how captured these institutions are by left-wing social justice hysteria. And to make matters even more confusing, there are Nazis in our society. And there are people who are Nazi-adjacent. And some of these people have had an inordinate influence over right-wing politics, undermining our basic commitment to democracy. There are many people on the right who, by tendency or design, seem to want an authoritarianism of their own. So we're being pushed and pulled by turns to some kind of precipice. And the question is, how can we step back? I mean, reality doesn't care about the color of your skin, or your biological sex, or the gender with which you identify, or the religion into which you were born, or the cult toward which you were lured from some shopping mall. And if we play our cards right, the future won't care about those things either. But the question is, how do we get to that future with our world intact? I mean, when will we realize that we're all on the same team and that we've been celebrating one own goal after the next? And how will we realize it? What is the mechanism that will force us to converge on a common picture of reality and a common set of primary values? Anyway, trying to figure this stuff out remains the purpose of this podcast. And as always, it's a privilege to have anyone listening at all. And now for today's questions. Hi, Sam. My name is Corey. I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. My question for you is more of a vote than a question. I'd really love to hear you discuss the Eric Topol podcast with Brett Weinstein on a future podcast. I know that you have considered that and kind of rule it out at this point, but love for you to reconsider. My sense is that there is a lot more common ground to land on than disagreement. And each of you, I think, could actually learn from the other about their own sense of reality surrounding the COVID issues. I think we're all a bit confused and we would all learn from the two of you learning from each other. Thank you. Hey, Corey. Thanks for the question. Yeah, this is, um, this is a hard one for me, actually. You know, I, I get that it seems crazy not to just flip on the microphone and talk to the guy, or talk to him and Heather, who's also been his partner in crime. It's hard to put this in a way that doesn't sound like a personal attack, but the reason why I don't want to do a podcast with Brett and Heather is the same as why I wouldn't do a podcast with a 9-11 truth conspiracy theorist or Alex Jones or anyone in that world. Because there's a basic asymmetry, which is very hard to overcome. It's so much easier to make a mess than to clean it up. It's so much easier to light several small fires than to put them out. It's like a 10 to 1 advantage. To put it that way, it sounds like my concern is not losing a debate, and that's absolutely not my concern. If you're going to view this as a debate, it's won almost immediately. But I worry about what people take from the encounter, and I just don't want to do additional harm to our public conversation about 
what is in fact an important public health concern and a growing political one. First, the asymmetry. The reason why there's such an asymmetry here is that it is just impossible to debunk most things in real time. And even if the point being made is in fact spurious, it won't seem spurious to 99% of an audience. Right? So the person on the conspiracy theory side of things can say, well, what about the 14 CDC officials who resigned last week and wouldn't give reasons when asked? What do you make of that? Right? Now, there's probably nothing to be made of that, right? I didn't even hear about it. And tr- the truth is, I just made that up. But when delivered in the context of a, quote, debate about these things, with someone who, whose whole angle is there's conspiracy everywhere, it can seem like, oh, you didn't know about that. Well, that's clearly a problem. You should look into that. What about the paper that just came out of Micronesia that showed ivermectin was 100% effective? I didn't see that paper out of Micronesia. Oh, you didn't. Well, okay, you should really do your homework. It's possible to just scatter a lot of dust in the eyes and ears of the audience and make it seem like there's so many anomalies out there. There's so many things that need to be explained. And if you're not going to explain those things, if you're not going to connect this particular pattern of dots, well, then you're just not doing the work. And, and that need not necessarily be done in bad faith. Of course, it can be, right? It's a tactic. But uh, that's not what I'm alleging Brett and Heather would do. I'm just saying that's the way they think now. It's such a scattershot approach to this. There's so little quality control around the kind of information they're putting forward. And it takes such an effort to chase it all down and debunk it. And anything that shows up that's new in the conversation can't be tracked down in real time. So I don't have much hope that a conversation would wind up producing a document that would be good for the world. The truth is, I'm not the best person to have the conversation either. It would be good to have an immunologist or a virologist or someone who's much closer to this type of research who could really get into the weeds with them more. And the truth is, they're obviously the wrong people to be doing what they're doing, and it shows, but it's not obvious to their audience. It apparently, it's not obvious to them. So you know, I, I would welcome an encounter between them and somebody who's truly professionally qualified to talk about all the details. And perhaps that will happen. I mean, in fact, I just reached out to Joe Rogan, telling him what I thought of his latest podcast with Brett and Heather, and recommended that he figure out how to unring that bell. Uh, and maybe he will bring Brett and Heather on with someone like Eric Topol or someone even closer to uh, the topic at hand. And that could be useful, but even then, I think that in front of Rogan's audience, it's questionable whether that will actually work for the reasons already given. It's just so easy to be misleading. And again, I'm not suggesting bad faith on their part. I, I think they probably really believe everything they're saying. But there is just an asymmetry here in how difficult it is to close every loophole to conspiracy and the influx of the incredible as they get opened in the conversation. I'll give you one example of the kind of thing I found 
implausible in Brett and Heather's last appearance with Joe Rogan. And it's the kind of thing that they too should find implausible, that the moment these words escape their mouths, and it's still mysterious to me why this isn't happening. But for instance, they were talking about the evolutionary logic of immune escape, right? So we get vaccines, and the moment tens of millions of people start getting vaccinated, that begins to select for variants that can evade the vaccine, right? So it's a, it's a fool's errand to be thinking that you're going to get out of this pandemic by vaccinating everyone, because you're just going to create more transmissible and possibly even more dangerous variants. Now, there's a lot wrong with this from a public health point of view and from an evolutionary point of view, right? I mean, it's, from an evolutionary point of view, it's just half the story, right? Yes, the immunity conferred through vaccination can select for variants that can defeat the vaccine, but the immunity conferred by having caught COVID and recovered also selects for variants that can escape that immunity, right? So vaccination is on all fours with natural immunity there. Think of how worried we need to be about a variant that can defeat natural immunity. Also, that's an argument against all vaccination, right? Because no vaccines, to my knowledge, are 100% effective, right? Regardless of exposure, regardless of possible genetic changes in a virus, right? And I believe that the mRNA vaccines for COVID are among the most effective vaccines we have. We're just in the middle of a pandemic, which is an extreme circumstance. I'm not quite sure how our measles vaccines would be performing if we were in the middle of a measles pandemic. If everywhere you went, you were confronted by somebody who had measles, I don't know how often measles mutates, but uh, I think we'd probably find that there's some breakthrough infection. So if you follow his argument, you seem to land in a true anti-vax position, right? Don't vaccinate against anything because you're selecting for dangerous variants. And again, ignoring the fact that natural immunity is also doing that. And it's curious that Brett and Heather are not seeing that because, again, they run everything through the logic of evolution. There's another glaring error here, you know, to suggest that our current problem with variants has anything to do with vaccination seems a little bonkers because the biggest problem, the Delta variant, emerged in India and became prevalent there under conditions where exactly no one was vaccinated. We know that the emergence of Delta has nothing to do with our vaccination regime. The whole thrust of their comments there is confused, right? And once again, the subtext to everything they're saying, no matter how reasonable and attentive to caveats they can seem, and I will grant you, they can seem incredibly reasonable. They do not seem like Alex Jones. And this is why what they're doing is so insidious. But the basic message, the basic implication of everything they say, and the apparent reason behind everything they're saying, is the belief that these COVID vaccines are dangerous, and you should be worried about them. You should be profoundly hesitant to take them. These are not normal vaccines. And in fact, the pushing of these vaccines on the public 
is colossally unethical. That is what they are messaging, right? They've said as much explicitly on their own podcast. I think Brett called it the greatest crime of the century or something insane like that. I should get the actual language, right? Hold on. Okay, now I've taken a few minutes and found the transcript of Brett's confabulation on this topic. He's talking about the absolute scandal of um, the uh, suppression of the life-saving knowledge of ivermectin and the pushing of the vaccines on his own podcast where he's talking to a Dr. Corey. The podcast itself is titled The Crime of the Century, and they're going back and forth about how nefarious the machinations must be to have produced this policy. Dr. Corey says all the pipeline molecules, the stuff that's coming that they want to bring to market, are also there, right? And and then Brett says, which have had a tremendous investment made in them. The thing I think we're almost certain to get wrong is that as outsiders, we have no idea what these conversations sound like on the inside. There's a temptation to imagine that people are somehow sitting around comfortable with the fact that their behavior is going to cause hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of deaths that it may stick humanity with a relationship with a pathogen that it will not be able to shake because it will prevent us from taking the appropriate action until it's too late. We imagine that people are saying these things out loud, when I'm sure that there are some sociopaths in the system who are probably capable of having those discussions, but there aren't enough sociopaths to account for this behavior. There is some way that people who are doing a harm great enough, I've called it the crime of the century, and I realize the century is young, but this is going to be hard to top. It's going to be hard to top. There is some way that people who are engaged in something worthy of a claim like the crime of the century are comfortable with what they are doing, or worse, are convinced it's the right thing, that somehow the greater good is being served. Okay, but here you have it in fairly crystalline form, the conspiratorial thinking, the outrageous claims about death and destruction due to these vaccines and the suppression of ivermectin for purely mercenary reasons. The problem, of course, is that there's no reason to think this is true, right? There is no reason to think that ivermectin is a surrogate for getting vaccinated. And there's no reason to think that people should be terrified of getting these vaccines. And that is the message that bread is spreading hour by hour by hour. Whereas the truth is, we have a head-to-head comparison between three cohorts of people, tens of millions, hundreds of millions in some cases, those who have been vaccinated, those who have caught COVID without being vaccinated, those who have caught COVID having been vaccinated, and we know the outcomes. We know them well enough to know that you're far better off being vaccinated and eventually catching COVID as you will, than catching it without having been vaccinated. Catching COVID is not a strategy for becoming immune to COVID. It's just catching COVID, right? And those who survive will have some natural immunity. The jury's no longer out on that score. Now, it may be true that in certain populations, it is rational to worry that the potential side effects of vaccination are greater than the risk of COVID. For instance, I believe there are some data about teenage boys having a higher risk of myocarditis than 
teenage girls, certainly. I think it's a tenfold difference. And the risk may be high enough that it is in fact greater than their risk of becoming severely ill with COVID. The data I saw suggested it was kind of a coin toss there, but slightly in favor of not getting vaccinated. If those data hold up, well then, yeah, it may be rational to decide that 12-year-old boys shouldn't be vaccinated. But the general picture here is fairly well established. We know catching COVID is worse in almost every case that has thus far been tried than getting vaccinated for COVID. And from what I've seen recently, the data in favor of ivermectin seems increasingly dubious. So parsing all this should be left to the professionals, right? Again, I come back to my basic mystification around what Brett and Heather are doing. Why do this publicly? If you're going to make the personal choice not to get vaccinated based on your scrutiny of the data, great, make that choice. But why spend the better part of a year convincing people that they shouldn't get vaccinated? You can say that's not what you're doing, but that is, in fact, what you're doing. And that's what seems so irresponsible. The U.S. is now one of the least vaccinated countries in the developed world. We got these life-saving vaccines before everyone. And now we're the 37th most vaccinated country. We're behind the UAE and Portugal and Singapore and Spain and Denmark and Uruguay and Chile, Belgium, Ireland, Canada, Bahrain, the UK, Mongolia. We're behind Mongolia, Norway, Italy, France, the Netherlands, Germany. We're behind Mauritius and Cyprus, but we're also behind Cambodia, Lithuania, Malaysia, the Czech Republic, Greece. It makes no sense, right? And it's because of misinformation, and the way it's interacting with our hyperpartisan political landscape. That's why we're here. And there's no question that uh, three hours of the Brett and Heather show on Joe Rogan is having an effect. And that'll sound as censorious as it does. I just think it's irresponsible. And I'm not quite sure how to grab hold of this increasingly unbalanced object so as to set it right. But perhaps Rogan will do something to unring that bell. Okay, next question. Hi, Sam. My name is Brian, and I live in Paris, Ontario. My question for you is, this October, a 100-year-old man will stand trial in Germany for alleged complicity in the killing of more than 3,500 people during his stint as a Nazi concentration camp guard. I'd like to know your thoughts on this. While it is very important to bring closure to Holocaust victims and their families, should his age be a factor in prosecuting him? Well, that's an interesting case. I haven't heard about it specifically, but um, there are many reasons to punish people. And one variable is certainly the prospect that they might harm others in the future. With a hundred year old Nazi, I think that uh, concern is non-existent, right? So that can't be the reason to prosecute him and put him in prison. But there are clearly symbolic reasons, which uh, may in fact be valid. Without the symbolism, 
yeah, it's, it's, it's reasonable to wonder why waste any time or money on this. Whatever he's done, he's not going to create further harm at this point. And when people have been imprisoned for doing heinous things, we often let them out once they get old enough to no longer pose a threat to society. But in the case of the Holocaust, in the case of someone who, it's alleged, is culpable for the deaths of thousands, there I think the symbolism is worth taking seriously. I think we do want to send the message that no matter how long you've escaped justice, even if it's the better part of a century, justice can still find you. I think that is a good message to send back into the system. So without knowing the details, I think I probably would support it, all the while acknowledging that there's surely nothing to fear from a Nazi centenarian. Next question. Hi, Sam. My name is Carrie. I live in Norman, Oklahoma. My question for you revolves around free will and voluntary behavior. I've read your books, including the one on free will, and I've listened to the Final Thoughts on Free Will podcast several times. It's helped me immensely with letting go of anger and resentment, as well as stopping me from trying to change or fix people. However, I'm still having difficulty understanding voluntary behavior as a choice. I totally understand involuntary behavior, tripping, seizures, etc. But if there is no free will, which I totally believe, how can any behavior be truly voluntary? When I try to explain to other people my belief that there's no free will, this is where I get stuck. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Hey, Carrie, thank you for the question. I'm glad my work on free will has been of some use to you. And I understand your confusion here. Many people share it. It all comes down to what you mean by truly voluntary. Yes, the universe is causing all of our behavior, and any specific behavior can be traced to upstream causes that you as a conscious subject can't truly account for. You can't claim to know why you did what you did, really. Why you did it at precisely that moment and to that degree. Why there wasn't some impediment arising to your doing that thing. Or some sudden reconsideration of it. Right? Why did you have precisely that amount of resolve or lack of it, right? All of this is mysterious, but there's still a difference between voluntary behavior and involuntary behavior. There's still a difference between doing what we intend for reasons that we support and getting what we want and failing to do some or all of those things. Let's say you want to change careers, right? You were a teacher but you no longer feel like doing that, and you'd rather become a chef. Now, this is the essence of a voluntary choice, right? No one's forcing you to cease to be a teacher. No one's demanding that you become a chef. It's all coming from you, right? But where is it coming from? How do you account for the fact that you no longer feel like being a teacher? Is that a change of feeling or priorities that you created in yourself? Or did it happen to you, right? First you wanted to be a teacher, and then you no longer wanted to be a teacher. 
and your desire to be a chef, where did that come from? Right? How can you account for the fact that some people would never want to be a chef under any circumstances and that you're not one of those people? You're not the true author of any of those changes. These are things that have happened to you. But given that they've happened, given that in fact you no longer want to be a teacher and you want to be a chef, there is a difference between getting what you want and failing to get what you want. And that difference is appropriately described in terms of choices and efforts that will be required and discipline and things you need to learn, right? Places you need to go, people you need to meet, conversations you need to have. And all of that has a different character than just sitting around waiting for something to happen, right? You can't just wait to become a chef. You actually have to do things. But in each moment of doing those things, there is a mystery at your back. You can't account for the fact that when looking for a cooking school, say, one will strike you as more desirable than the other. Why wasn't it the other way around? Each specific moment contains a mystery. There are days where you hit the snooze button on your alarm clock once or twice or three times. And there are days that you jump out of bed. And there may be one day in your life where you decide you can never hit the snooze button again because you listened to a podcast and they told you that was the number one error in your morning routine. And that convinced you. But why did it convince you and not someone else? How is it that you're the sort of person who could be convinced by that? And having been convinced, how can you account for your resolve to make this change in yourself indelible? Why aren't you the sort of person who persists with that new habit for a month, but then falls back to hitting the snooze button? You are never in a position to inspect the true causes of any of this. And yet the difference between acting strategically and systematically in the world so as to get what you want and not being able to make those kinds of efforts is real. It's just as real as if we built two different kinds of robots. We could build a robot that really gets things done, it has concrete goals, and it meets all of them, right? And we could build a robot that is just chaos, that just bangs into things. Each would be utterly governed by the laws of physics. Each would have no freedom at all to create itself. Even if the first robot can revise its own code and improve itself, it's doing that on the basis of code it already has. Right? There's simply no other tools with which to work. So I understand it can be confusing, but seeing through the illusion of free will doesn't demolish the distinction between making an effort and failing to, being satisfied with the results of any given action, or being dissatisfied, preferring pleasure to pain and happiness to suffering. Right? All of these distinctions can be made, and yet we can still recognize that in each moment, everything is simply arising all by itself, including this next thought, intention, desire, doubt, etc. Anyway, I hope that helps. Good luck trying to explain it to your friends, and thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. My name is Mikkel Sion, and I live in Stockholm, Sweden. 
My question for you is about developing aid. I have come to wonder if not most of the developing aid that we in the rich part of the world in different forms give to poor countries does more harm than good. My concern is that it feeds corruption and benefits non-democratic regimes rather than help people to rise from poverty and illiteracy. So is it possible to change all these failed states? And in that case, how can we do it? Yeah, this is a difficult problem. Actually, uh, a previous podcast guest, Dambisa Moyo, has thought a lot about this. And for some reason, I never raised the issue with her in our podcast. That was a missed opportunity. Anyway, you might look her up, but it is an issue, though I don't think it's an insurmountable one. It's clear that funds can be misappropriated, they can be stolen, there can be lots of fraud, there can be bad incentives, there can be projects that should never be funded in the first place. And I would imagine the risk of all of that gets compounded in any society where there's significant political corruption. So this just becomes an argument for relying on the best information and the best organizations to properly vet the outcome of specific projects. This is why I have smart people advising me in how to distribute funds from the Waking Up Foundation. And this has been one of the great developments in philanthropy introduced by effective altruism, uh, which I've discussed a lot on the podcast with the philosopher Will McCaskill, uh, and also with Peter Singer, and there's a track on it in the Waking Up app. But it's just well understood at this point that the difference between two charities ostensibly working on the same problem can be a hundredfold in terms of their effectiveness. So it's worth knowing what's actually going on and knowing that there are good people keeping track of it. And if you're uncertain in general about where to give, I highly recommend checking out givewell.org. Their maximum impact fund seems like a very good place to start. Okay, next question. Hi, Sam. My name is Chris, and I live in Austin, Texas. Jumping right into my question, could you please provide us with an update on your thoughts about the progress of AI since you spoke about it on your TED Talk and also on Joe Rogan's podcast? Uh, I become frustrated when I hear responses from scientists I admire, like Neil deGrasse Tyson, when they dismiss the existential concerns about general artificial intelligence. To me, the control problem is more important to consider than ever before, particularly with the advances DeepMind is making. Okay, AI risk. Yeah, my views really haven't changed at all. I've never been committed to a specific timeline. That's always seemed like a red herring, right? So the risk of the alignment problem or the control problem is what it is regardless of time frame. And I've never had a strong sense that the real risk of artificial general intelligence would present itself within a time horizon of 10 years or 20 years. I I just don't know. But I remain convinced that we should take this risk very seriously and that it's not at all obvious how much time is required to get all our ducks in a row. We have a current condition which is effectively an arms race, and it seems patently obvious that an arms race is not the best system of incentives in which to figure out how to build artificial general intelligence safely. So we have to deal with that circumstance first, and there's no guarantee we have enough time in which to do that, right? So we better get busy. So I do think it's appropriate to feel 
urgency around this problem without knowing what the time horizon of progress actually is. But there have been some very good books published since I gave my TED Talk in 2016, and one of those is Stuart Russell's Human Compatible, which I highly recommend. Also, I think Neil has changed his thinking here. I don't know if he changed it back, but he definitely said publicly at one point that he was persuaded by my conversation with Eliezer Yudkowsky on this podcast to take the alignment problem seriously. I don't know if there's been any backsliding there. Neil, if you've lost the thread here, please come back to have your thoughts corrected. Anyway, I remain convinced that this topic will only be more and more important and more and more interesting as the years pass. Hi, Sam. My name is Dan Cutler from San Francisco, California. My question to you is, what did you think of Simone Biles' decision to stop performing at the Olympics? Hey, Dan. Thanks for the question. Yeah, that was an interesting moment. Actually, it was one of those moments where my thoughts and feelings changed diametrically very quickly, just given a few more considerations. Actually, now I recall at the time I spoke about this with Ricky Gervais. We were recording the second season of our podcast, Absolutely Mental, which will be out soon. And uh, we discussed that briefly. But I remember actually seeing it live, and I thought, okay, this is yet another example of the snowflakery we've been seeing among professional athletes. Uh, There had just been some tennis players who had dropped out of some major tournaments, you know, citing the emotional pressure of having to speak with the press, I think. That had seemed to be some kind of evidence that we have a generation of very thin-skinned millennials and Gen Z athletes who really need to mature somehow. So I initially viewed it in that way, but over the course of a couple of hours, just got some more information. One is I hadn't realized that she was yet another victim of that sexual abuse scandal that happened in American gymnastics where the team doctor had been abusing, I think it was scores, if not hundreds of girls, and that that had deeply affected her. So that's one variable, but actually not even the most important one. What I suddenly understood when I heard some commentator speak about it is that there's really no analogy between dropping out of a tennis tournament and dropping out of a gymnastics competition. And what Simone Biles does is fantastically dangerous. If you lose your sense of where you are in a vault, you can wind up a quadriplegic if you land on your head. So once those dominoes fell for me, I realized I'm in no position at all to second-guess Simone Biles or any other gymnast uh, or anyone else who's doing something genuinely dangerous who has to make a game-time decision about their own fitness to compete. You're not in their head, right? You just don't know what's going on. So that was a very clear and refreshing case of getting something absolutely wrong and then rethinking it over the course of an hour or so. Okay, next question. Hi, Sam. My name's Chuck Zunt, and I live in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My question is, if you ran Facebook, and only had to answer to yourself. What sort of restrictions or procedures 
would you apply to content that didn't violate First Amendment exceptions like obscenity, fraud, inciting imminent violence, or libel? Thanks. Hey, Chuck. I might have some voiceover work for you to do. God damn. <laughs> That's, uh, if you're not doing that job, you might look into it. I'm genuinely confused about the future of social media and what these companies should do to help solve the various societal problems they have either exacerbated or fully created. It's just not clear to me. I mean, it just might be that a company like Facebook can't help but do tremendous harm, given the nature of what it does. Uh, You know, if you treat it as a publisher and you hold it responsible for everything that appears on the platform, at that scale, I just don't see how that works. And if you consider it a kind of utility, like the phone company, which should be governed by something very much like the First Amendment, and you just let everyone say more or less anything they want within the parameters you just sketched out, I think you're left with some extraordinarily bad outcomes. Misinformation about vaccines will spread faster than good information. Conspiracy theories about election fraud will capture an entire political party. I don't know how we pull back from the brink here, uh, and I don't know what is rational to expect them to do algorithmically. Thus far, they appear to be terrible at practicing any kind of real censorship. I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get a totally sane, ethical, secular person reinstated on Twitter for having run afoul of one of their policies. So unfortunately, this is just a non-answer that acknowledges the gravity of the problem. I think it's a huge problem, and I don't know how we solve it. Thanks for the question. Hi, Sam. My name is Judy J. Johnson, and I live in Calgary, Alberta. I've written two books about dogmatism, and my question is, why do you think dogmatic people cling to their beliefs with rigid, absolute certainty? even in the face of convincing evidence that should give reason to pause. This is um, one of the biggest problems on Earth, and I don't have great answers beyond some obvious ones. We have some neuroscientific data that support our intuitions here. I did an fMRI experiment on this topic about five or six years ago, with uh, Jonas Kaplan, we were looking at resistance to belief change, and we used political beliefs as a condition where we expected people to be highly resistant to changing their beliefs, even in the presence of counter-evidence. And we found what you would expect, that there's a role for emotion and feeling here. You know, in our study, activation of the amygdala and the insula predicted people's resistance to changing their beliefs. The insula is involved in disgust and withdrawal processing when you're in the presence of stimuli that are potentially harmful. And so the same circuitry seemed to be involved in the protection of one's belief system. And also we saw the default mode network more active when uh, subjects were considering challenges to their political beliefs compared with non-political ones. And the default mode network also seems to govern self-representation and identity-related processing. 
when you have to consider whether something applies to you as a person, say, your default mode will be more active. So, you know, it does come down, I think, to feeling and identity, uh, the emotional implications of changing one's beliefs. Have you believed this cherished notion for your entire life? You know, have you taught it to your kids? Did you indoctrinate them week after week and year after year? Is it possible that if your mind changed on this point, you would lose your marriage? I hear from people all the time who have lost their faith in God and yet can't confess as much to their spouse because they're absolutely sure that that would lead to a divorce and to their no longer being able to spend time with their kids. So these are the stakes for many people, depending on the nature of the belief. It's just easy to see how having that much hanging in the balance can distort people's thinking. Of course, the brilliance of science and the brilliance of rationality in general is that when you actually play by those rules, uh, you can't help but cut through all of that if you're really playing by those rules. So this is what we have to attempt more and more, especially when we're discussing ideas in public, right? I mean, whether one goes to the mat everywhere in one's private life, there I think you, you just have to assess whether it's worth it in any case. Maybe there's some people in your life you don't have certain conversations with because it would just be too costly emotionally. But for anyone who has a public-facing role in discussing what may or may not be true, journalistically, historically, scientifically, etc., then I think we have a responsibility to be as careful and as consistent and as alert to the possibility of error as we can be. And we all need to continually acknowledge that wishful thinking and sunk cost and a wide variety of cognitive biases are not our friends, and we have to do our best to cut through them. And that is something I certainly hope to do myself, and where I fail, I will expect to hear from many of you about it. Okay, I think I'll leave it there, and I'll see you back here on the podcast soon. Thanks for listening.